This is Mechanically Incorrect, a science, engineering, and education podcast like no other, where we talk the good, the bad, and the ugly of academia, industry, and research. Mechanically Incorrect is a podcast conceived by the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the FAMU FSU College of Engineering in Tallahassee, Florida. Views expressed are solely those of each speaker, and we mean that. I'm Neil Coker. I'm Billy Oates. Let's talk shop. Yeah, the uh, we're, we're going to go with a uh, pre-recorded version of that for the final release of this, um, and then we'll a great icebreaker. I'm totally. Now it's now now we're now we're all awake. Um, all right, so welcome to Mechanically Incorrect. Today we have a very special episode because we have two guests. So we're using all four mics in the studio, and we're going to see how that plays out. So uh, without further ado, we have. Uh, First and foremost, um, visiting us from the University of Michigan, we have Professor Jesse Grizzle. Is it Grizzle or Grizzle? It's Grizzle. It's Grizzle, just like a grizzly bear. Yeah, I I always tell my students it's Grizzle like drizzle, okay? And if you want to say it's like fizzle, that's okay too, but it's not Grizzle like grizzly. (laughs) Got it. Okay. Uh, So uh, Professor Grizzle is the head of the robotics department there at U of M, and uh, so his full bio, which I definitely did not just steal from his abstract, is uh, <laughs> Jesse W. Grizzle received his Ph.D. in electrical engineering from the University of Texas at Austin in 1983. He is currently a professor of robotics at the University of Michigan, where he holds the titles of the Elmer Gilbert Distinguished University Professor and the Jerry and Carol Levin Professor of Engineering. He jointly holds 16 patents dealing with emissions reduction in passenger vehicles through improved control system design. Professor Grizzle is a fellow of the IEEE and IFAC. His work on bipedal locomotion has been the subject of numerous plenary lectures and has been featured on CNN, ESPN, Discovery Channel, The Economist, Wired Magazine, Discover Magazine, Scientific American, and Popular Mechanics. Professor Grizzle was the director of the Michigan Robotics Institute from 2016 through June 2022. He held the transition of the institute to a, depart- uh, to a department and the offering of an undergraduate degree in robotics. Also with us is our very own assistant professor, Christian Hubicki. Um, now, Christian Hubicki is uh, also renowned for uh, as being a contestant on uh, <laughs> whatever season that was of Survivor that you were on. Is that uh, true? I, I don't remember that. It's so long ago. It was so long ago. He's also the uh, lab director of our Optimal Robotics uh, Laboratory here uh, at the AME Center. Um, and we're very happy to have both of these gentlemen here with us. Um, sorry, I cut your your bio short there, well, Christian. I, I, you know, Jesse did his homework. I can and read it, in and I didn't. So I can read it know. on. I can read your your, your website that, bio. That's if, okay. If that, if, that, if that strokes your ego. No, I no, no, my, my no, no stroking necessary. We'll just we'll get <laughs> we'll get into the, in the robot talk. All right, guys, I've talked enough. Thank you so much for um, uh, for joining us today, guys. Um, so, uh, Professor Grizzle is also our um, our seminar speaker for the day, uh, for the day. He's going to be giving a talk on uh, feedback control for agile and dynamic bipedal locomotion. So, what's that all about, Jesse? <laughs> um, it's about robots that have two legs and walk like us. And my modest objective is that the robot can walk better than at least me. And if it walks better than you, that's when I know I've... I've actually achieved something. So, yeah, that's what it's all about. It's 
trying to make machines uh, able to go in environments where uh, humans can go. So when we had that huge nuclear disaster at Fukushima, so it was a, an, Amer an American robot showed up that had tracks. Um, it took almost two weeks for the robot to get there. And then it took them a week to figure out how to teach this robot with a, a human operator to actually go up, go up a set of stairs, something that, you know, you or I would have done in just minutes. And they weren't going, they weren't sending the robot to do heavy-duty repairs. They just wanted to, to reconnoiter what was going on inside of this plant. And so just to have bipedal robots that you could send in as expendable entities on a pair of two legs would be a wonderful thing. And so that's part of what I'm trying to do. So there's a lot of practical application then for, um, for creating robots that actually move the way we move so that we can, so that it can go to the places that humans can go or can't go in the case of a post-nuclear disaster. Um, exactly. I mean, when there's, you know, when something bad happens and most of the humans run away. We do send in other humans who are trained to go into these facilities and they're usually not riding uh, riding uh, horses or something. You know, they could move around quick, more quickly on a horse, but they couldn't go up the catwalks. They couldn't go all the places that humans can go. So that's a reason why there's probably not going to be a uh, quadrupedal army that shows up and helps um, with rescue disaster and recovery, it's because for some reason we've designed all of our factories and homes to accommodate these upright, narrow uh, walkers. And so if you can design robots with that same morphology, then they can go in any place that we've designed humans to be able to access for repair, etc. So that's the idea. There's another aspect to it that I'll talk about in my seminar a little bit, is that when humans are injured and you're trying to restore gait, understanding how stability works for humans can really help you in designing better prosthetics, exoskeletons, and things like that. So that instead of relegating a part of humanity to not really fully participating in society, you can give them the, the tools, the extra body parts, the assistance, so that they can... Um, have a fulfilling and complete life just like you and I. So that's really uh, uh, another aspect of it. And I'll just jump in here because uh, J Jesse and I have a history. We, we, uh, back when, uh, you know, this, this 2011 uh, um, Fukushima Daiichi disaster, you know, coincidentally, it was, I believe, the start of the big M3 grant between your lab at Michigan. Yes, with, uh, you, with your uh, PhD advisor. My PhD advisor at Oregon State, jo Jonathan Hurst, and also Carnegie Mellon, uh, Hart McGuire. And so this was like a major DARPA DOD sponsored program to get like next generation mobile robots. It started in 2011, and it was this major thing where you had to build three of these robots and control three of, the, the, three of these robots. And I and I know you you have probably have a clearer picture uh, history of this than I do because I was just a wee baby grad student getting the news from my advisor about this thing coming down and, and creating all these new ideas as a young graduate student <laughs> oh, should okay yeah yeah no, it's a, well I, the history i remember was like fascinating like like that i remember jonathan was preparing this grant with you all and we got it and it was such a huge deal and then like i believe we said that we wanted to build these three bipedal robots you know, like like over the course of five years 
And my, my memory was that DARPA said, that's a great idea. But what if instead you built those three robots in 18 months? 18 months. Uh, that, that Standard <laughs> DARPA-esque expectation. Yep. And we did it, and I think they took the extra money, and that's when they started the DARPA Robotics Challenge. So, so what was the status of um, bipedal robots at this point in time when it was proposed to DARPA? Had, had there been much done in that area, or where, where did where, how did you guys extend the work? So... There were a few robots. You know, there was Honda's Asimo, yeah. which could be taken out for shows. And it was a pretty impressive machine. Um, but they put these very large feet on it. And if you notice, if you look around your room and you have any lamps or something in it, they're able to stay upright because you put a big enough base on anything, it can. Um, there was, let's see, Johnny in Germany, which was another interesting uh, robot that, where they had all these novel ideas of powertrain with screw drives and stuff, and I don't know if it ever walked more than 100 meters, okay? Mm. Um, the primitive version of Atlas at Boston Dynamics had been, had been built, and then there was the um, two other robots in, in Japan, to, Oh, um, HRP4C. HRP, thank you for that acronym. Um, And so all of them were very slow-moving robots that really used a support polygon, which, which meant that you had to move your center of mass and keep it very carefully between a, a box that would be um, bounded by the feet of the robot. Now, my previous work had been on a robot that my French colleagues called Rabbit. Rabbit. I thought they were just pretending that my uh, French was really bad, and I thought the robot's name was really Lapin. Okay, but it wasn't. It was actually Rabbit. And they called it Rabbit because it was supposed to be very fast and everything. Well, the key part of this robot was that it had no feet. So it walked on little stubs at the end. So it was equivalent to a ballerina walking uh, tiptoe. And everybody in the robotics community had kind of laughed at them for designing this robot because ah, it's never going to walk. And it would never, it's theoretically impossible for it to walk using the principles that were um, common in the field at the time. So we had to invent something totally new to do that. Um, so I had that history. I had worked with um, Christian's uh, PhD advisor on designing a robot that we ended up calling Mabel. Um, Mabel eventually ran at three meters per second. It could step off of 20 centimeter um, uh, ledges and not stumble and fall. It could do a whole bunch of amazing things. We had this as kind of our background. Uh, and then Jonathan got this idea to team up with Hartmut and write this grant. Now, I was, I was probably 30 years, well, I'm still 30 years older than Jonathan. I was 30 years <laughs> older at the time. It's actually still true, you oh, know? Okay. I didn't know but, there was relativity going right, on. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's it's, strange. It's and, unfortunate how that works out. Yeah, and I just did not want to be a PI on a DARPA grant. And Jonathan took it on as his, like, second year as an assistant professor at Oregon State. I and think he did that'll it. make you 40 years older than him. <laughs> <laughs> so you probably worked that out right. 
Well, I actually probably aged him. I'm only 20 years older than him now. I, th- I think that's what you were really trying to get at. But yeah, that's uh, a funny thing like yeah. that. Yeah. So uh, that's 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 what got got going on the on the robotics front. I'm, so. I'm curious though, if you come back, I'm really curious about when you said the uh, no one thought this. Ra- I think it was the rabbit, rabbit would yeah. work on like this beat, ballerina. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was the fundamental difference that they or you had insight on, and how did that how did that work out? Yeah, you see, my training was in, um, you know, I, I sometimes describe it to students as my abstract nonsense phase, okay? So I was trained in differential geometry and that was those and a, applying it to nonlinear uh, differential equations. And applied in that field meant that you actually had an, an actual, actual, equation with terms and some numbers in it and we didn't even have to have simulations to call it an application but we just kind of worked out a few calculations on it and so it was a big leap for me to um, go from that to playing with these uh, bipedal uh, bipedal bipedal models but I did a couple of things so the the field had not really written down the models in a mathematically correct way, they had the they understood all the pieces, but they didn't really f- treat it as a hybrid system. And so the first thing I did was to write down the models in a different way than the field was doing, a way that I think everybody just takes for granted now. Yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, and for those who are not controls or dynamicists in the audience, I mean, uh, you know, wh- one thing we take for granted when we walk around, Jesse mentioned this hybrid system, it, it's that we have, every time we put our foot down, that's an impact. That foot hits the ground, and then it jumps you to a different, vo- your, your whole body's in a different sort of part of your velocity space, and that creates these little jumps in, the, in how we understand the controls. And that a lot of the most powerful control techniques that we had prior to this work were what we call t- continuous dynamics, where there aren't these things jumping around. Imagine a drone flying around in space. You know, it's like, it, unless it's crashing into the walls, it has largely the same physics throughout its whole operation, for the most part. Uh, but for walking, you needed this extra step where you take into account what we call hybrid dynamics, where you have those impacts in addition to that continuous dynamics. And that math is what enabled robots like Rabbit, later Mabel, and um, and then later Atreus, etc., uh, Marlowe, uh, 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 the, 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 the successor robots, to make those work. And just to give the audience sort of like a gestalt of how these things walk, they are... Unlike what Jesse was describing with like the old Asimo robots where you're standing on a big flat foot, which is sort of stable and statically balanced, uh, I mean, people like Jesse note that that's not how we walk. We kind of stick our foot out in front of us, fall, our leg impacts the ground. Catch ourselves. Catch ourselves, continue, right? And so that's how Jesse's uh, control schemes work because he's taking into account the fact that we have these dynamics. We can fall, and things change, and, and um, it's not static and stable on its own. But we fall and catch ourselves over and over again with those little hybrid impacts, and then keep walking. And yeah, so just confronting that head on instead of ignoring that aspect allowed these robots that had a morphology that was very interesting. And if you can walk on tiptoes, you can walk on regular feet 
two. Okay, so that's that's what got everything going. That makes sense. Yeah, it, it reminds me when we were talking earlier about triathlons. At some point, I was thinking, you know, I would. Well, I played baseball, so I didn't um, think much in terms of being an athlete. You know, usually baseball players are not real athletes. So then I had to learn how to run. So I actually picked up a book, and I was like, there's some physics here, and the main thing is you just lean forward and catch yourself. And, you know, like I think Usain Bolt has the largest angle from what I've seen, and that's how he's able to run so fast. So are are those some of those basic principles that you – from running dynamics that go into this? Yeah, I mean, in – You know, motors are not the same as muscles, and nerves are not the same as wires, and microprocessors are not the same as brains and everything. So, you know, it's it's fun to make these connections. They're always a little bit loose, okay? But it's true. You can walk. We can make a robot walk with different types of styles, and we can make a robot run with different types of styles. So I did a We got this... French robot rabbit to run a little bit and it had the gate we programmed up in it was like Michael Johnson I think he was the 200 meter expert he had this very mm-hmm. upright yeah, yeah. stance very yeah. different than all the other runners but yet he was kind of mm-hmm. flying around the track right mm-hmm. um, and so I guess he was using push off much more efficiently on mm-hmm. his legs than, than others okay um, the the leaning forward, you have to be really, really sure you're going to get that other leg in front of you in time to do it. And the current state of robotics is maybe our robots are not reliable enough to uh, actually take it out there. But eventually, hmm. we should be doing that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting to know. Yeah, so you, you somewhat answered my next question, but I, I guess... Yeah, I, I, that, that's, that's part of what I do. I, I read minds, uh, <laughs> Neil, and uh, anticipate. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask, you know, to what extent did you incorporate human gate research when, into, your, into these algorithms? And uh, obviously, you just answered my question. You, you actually based this on specific runners. Um, what was no, the, no, no. I'm just saying that's... that's what our robot gate reminded oh, me okay, of. Oh, okay, sorry, I, I no, misinterpreted. No, no, that's um, okay. Yeah, I, I do no bio, uh, no biomimicry whatsoever. I let the mathematics okay. of the individual robot, the um, torque limits of the actuators, the friction available on ground contacts, that dictates what my robot can do. Not me saying it should walk like Jesse Grizzle or... <laughs> Christian Hubicki. Yeah, that would be a mistake. The, uh, it, it, and and, and your, your greater point is that, I mean, that's it's often a question that we get in this field. Like, oh, do you, like, put people in front of a motion capture field and say walk like that? And there's a real danger when you do that is that you're copying, you're mimicking biomimicry, something that you don't really understand. 
I mean, that there's a, there might be a purpose to why we walk the way we do wh- that is specific to our morphology. I mean, the robot doesn't weigh the same as a person. Right. The mass distribution is, is different. And, I mean, also, like, the robot might have different, like, like softness to it. Like, like, uh, like we have muscles that, that can absorb and tendons that absorb impact. Your robot may or may not have that. And they have dainty ankles, da- as you, yeah, as you da- mentioned da- with the rabbit. Yeah, uh, very important <laughs> functionality. I mean, and, and, like, and so by letting the mathematics of how the robot is the how the robot it works it, it, it that's what enables it to do its best and heck if you happen to design a robot that is is physically a lot like a like a human being in all its dynamical properties then theoretically out of Jesse's math should pop out a human like game potentially potentially that's potentially. my hypo- that's potentially. my hypothesis um just a, like but the but the point wouldn't be we copied how a person walked it was it's wa- the robot is walking that way because it's good for that robot. And to do something else might not be a good idea. So I guess the broader question then is, it does seem that it's from you know, an optimal standpoint for what we want to employ these robots for, a bipedal movement is uh, much preferable to quadrupedal or something uh, track-based. Um, why do you think it is that as we design more advanced robots, the more uh, functional ones uh, for the, the, the purposes that you describe seem to end up, uh, according to the mathematics, um, somewhat resembling human gait. Um, well, if you take two sticks and swing them from a common hinge, I think you're going to have most people just subconsciously identifying that motion as humans, okay? So I'm projecting, in other words. You are projecting. (laughs) Now, if you really crouch the robot down, then they're going to say it's more of a chimpanzee gait. Now, Christian's advisor is very much inspired by birds, and so he uses an avian-inspired morphology. So, you know, what, what you and I would call... The knee is flipped around, but on the bird, that's actually the ankle that's flipped around and pointing backwards. The knee on the bird is about four inches below the hip, okay? You can't even see it. It's just got muscle all around it, okay? And on the Cassie robot, it's kind of hidden up in there, too. It's a short link, the knee, okay? So he was inspired by that morphology. And yet I still think the people who visit the lab, even though they know... It's a Cassie robot, which is named after a cassowary, which is essentially an ostrich, okay, for us. For an engineer, it's close enough to an ostrich, yeah, okay, we, at least we, for this. We round, we round it to we an round ostrich. We round it to an ostrich. I did not know that that was what Cassie was named after. I thought it was an acronym. Uh, <laughs> cassowary, cassowary, dude. That's amazing. Um, yeah, so I think you are projecting is the right word, yeah. Well. So I wonder, since... So I know you have a controls background, and I know uh, you've got background in optimal control. So I'm wondering, when you think about morphology and geometry and then all the work in neural networks or reinforcement learning, I get, and maybe someone's done this because I haven't followed that literature, but if you had a robot and you had reinforcement learning, in principle they should be able to figure out their own gait. And so... That's one side of the question. Then the other is, wh- how do you 
design these? Do you think more on morphology? Do you think about the, figuring out the optimal gait, or do you try to do all these together? How, how do you go about solving that problem? I, I can maybe speak, a, if, if you permit me to summarize a little bit of your work from uh, the, whether it's the rabbit era or, the, or, or years thereafter. Um, the, the ways that, Je, that Jesse designs the gate is through an optimization process. Um, so this is long before the boom of the recent deep reinforcement learning is designing a gate to minimize a cost function, which is a mm-hmm. fancy way of just defining what we want as control designers out of the robot. And so Jesse will have terms in there which are like, well, we want to minimize the motor torques so that way it's not using too much. But at the same time, we want the gate to be steady, you know, or le- meaning that like maybe every step is roughly the same as the last step. And that's an optimization process, and out of that pops this gate. And, um, and that's one stage of the process is deciding how you want to walk. And then on top of that, you know, you're in the real world. You're not going to be executing that perfectly when the, when, when the outside world is pushing on you or you're stepping on obstacles. That's where the feedback control part of this comes in. So in Jesse's talk title, you know, it, there's a feedback control of bipedal locomotion that helps drive the robot to this gate that we optimized. So, so this technology for making a gate be designed by some kind of algorithm, that is actually long-established technology. And I think that the reinforcement learning folks, they have their own approach, which has advantages and disadvantages. Uh, but that's kind of baked in to how we think about robotic gates, at least circa 2003 and onward, I would say. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I'm, I think Christian has really summarized that well. Um, reinforcement learning is another way of doing optimization. And, you know, we, it's new is always better. Isn't that right, Neil? Uh, that's a that's a loaded question. Uh, that's a not always better. <laughs> okay, well, uh, the course of history suggests that that is not true. Okay, but, okay, uh, okay. Uh, I was being somewhat facetious, but um, new is shinier usually. But it's often the case that newer gets more attention, and so this the reinforcement learning is very hot right now. Students want to do it; it gets them jobs. And I'm a big fan of students getting jobs and stuff. So, and the le- they made leaps and bounds, literally and figuratively, literally and figuratively, in the reinforcement learning applied to uh, gates. Four or five years ago, I would never have believed that I would see a Cassie robot completing a hundred. Was it a hundred yard or a hundred meters? A hundred meter dash. Uh, so recent, this in, is in the news recently. In uh, twenty five seconds, yeah. just under twenty five seconds. Okay, wow. and that was all done with reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. Um, is that Oregon State? <coughs> yeah. Now we so, we did it at track. Michigan on a different robot ten years ago and got three meters per second, but it was much simpler. It was, was a planar robot. Was that Atreus? Or? No, that was the robot called Mabel. Oh, that was Mabel. That was Mabel, yeah. And so Jonathan and I built that robot together when he was a Ph.D. student. Yeah, you know, just as a layperson, just because uh, I was watching some of your videos earlier as I was hurriedly trying to get up to speed uh, before this podcast, um, I, I was just amazed to see how far uh, robotics, the field has progressed uh, since, you know, 1999 uh, when, when you're working with the rabbit and now we have 
these these amazing Cassie robots that are uh, that are doing things that that we can't even do, and that are you know teaching us more about um, you know bipedal movement than um, I think you could even get out of a lot of human gait research. Um, really fascinating stuff. Um, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit just because I know your your, your talk is all about feedback controls. Now, feedback control, that's a facet of everyday life, correct? I mean, this is something that, you know, for instance, like, you know, homeostasis in the human body is a sort of aspect of feedback control. And that's something that we uh, factor into, you know, how we design our homes, uh, household appliances and the like. Um, So I guess my my question is, uh, you know, how exactly do we harness feedback controls to improve everyday life uh, outside of robotics? Well, we could spend a year going through various examples, but um, let's just take the cars everyone is driving. There must be a hundred different feedback loops running in that. So there's one that's adjusting the airflow and fuel flow into the individual cylinders in your car to keep the air-fuel ratio just perfect so that you can get what's called a stoichiometric burn. So this is where theoretically you can take all of the hydrogens and carbons and oxygens and combine them and have CO2 and water come out. Unfortunately, there's this stuff called nitrogen in the air and, you know, that gets all hot and combines with the oxygen and you get some noxious gases there and stuff. But there's feedback loops there. There's a, often we have speed controls in our car. We have, um, climate systems that are keeping the, the uh, temperatures regulated. Um, just us being inside of the car, we have a vestibular system that tells us which direction is up, except when we lose that signal from who knows what, si- what we are doing, maybe on a roller coaster, let's say. It gets us dizzy. Yep, yep. Get dizzy. And, you know, maybe college students lose that signal with a different reason, okay? It could be chemically induced. What do you think? I've never heard of such a thing, but it's an interesting hypothesis. It's an interesting hypothesis, and since we're on uh, mechanically incorrect, we can make some interesting hypotheses. I I think so. so. Okay, that's so. What is feedback? It is having a way of measuring the state of some object that is of interest to you, whether that's a car or a human body or um, a a uh, walking robot. Some means of adjusting what is happening in that system, and that can be a motor, that can be a valve, that can be a, the uh, volume of gas going to a flame to change a temperature. That's called an actuator. You have this thing that's making the measurement. It's called a sensor. And it becomes a feedback control system when you hook up those measurements and you adjust the actuators as a function of what you're seeing the system do, and you compare it to what you want the system to be done, to be doing. And so the, the theory that allows you to take very complex sets of equations, so the equations for rabbit, I will show the audience the, this afternoon in seven pages, 10-point font, okay? That's the equations for rabbit. The equations for Cassie fills up about 100 pages, okay? No human has ever gone through every line in that model, okay? But, but we have... We have tools that allow us to, do, to derive all of those uh, things. And then we use optimization, which is Christian's specialty, to extract out the key information from those equations. 
so that we then design a feedback loop that keeps the system operating around this this optimal uh, gate or cycle or state of the system. Mm -hmm. And that's what a big part of feedback control is about, is making something that is... um, that has the proper rigidity and compliance and keeping all of the chemical balances so that this material doesn't, doesn't uh, fracture under an impulsive load, nor does it uh, bend under just heavy traffic going across the bridge, etc. So there's all of these things going on, and us being able to handle more and more complex systems and having ever um, more precise sensors and different ways of acting on systems is allowing us to um, create an automated society where humans eventually will be spared a lot of the drudgery that many of us are doing today. So just to keep the streets clean, the, the, um, the, uh, the fries running, humming in the uh, fast food uh, kitchens, and uh, the buses running, etc. So there's going to be a whole range of things where we're going to free up us humans to do more interesting things, and that's is all automation there, and robotics. There is a, a worry, though. I think I sent this to Christian uh, when I was at a Gordon conference, and I, I'm trying to remember who it was. In the, I think it's in the UK. They had built a robot for uh, chemistry, and the the robot would just go in the lab and just like all the work in machine learning now, you can try all these different things to get the chemistry just right. Yeah. So they it was, had. He was doing assays, right? Random assays, yeah, doing so they, thousands and thousands. And they would go from time. one station to yeah, another. And yeah, yeah. He was getting a PhD in a week doing these things. Yeah. So it was amazing that you know robots were doing that sort of thing, and it, it kind of made me think about. There was one article you had. I can't remember. I think it was a. Which one? Maybe I don't have it here, but after COVID, I think you and everyone in the robotics community started thinking about all these things we need to start doing when we're separated, like maybe cleaning hospitals better. You know, I'd mentioned my wife. Uh, she's a nurse, but she used to work in a hospital. She's like, it's the, the worst place you want to be. If You, you want to get patients out of there as soon as possible because it's just germs everywhere. So I can imagine just huge opportunities in hospitals to for, clean them. For cleaning them up, yeah. 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 yeah, and the robot will do the same thing over and over and not get bored with it, you know. So that's that's the key thing, whereas mm-hmm. the human goes, you know, I've cleaned this thing just ten minutes ago. Who cares if someone else was in the room? Now, the fact that they coughed and spread all this stuff, you know, the human doesn't think about that because we just get bored with it, okay? Whereas the robot, you just program it, you're going to scrub all of these surfaces this many times every day, and it'll just happen. So it can help all of us. Now, I, I have a question that I, I'd be, I'd love it if you could, you know, uh, assuage a concern I have on, on that. No, no, is it, I just wrote this down so I don't sound stupid as I ask it. Um, is, is it possible that as we create more complex solutions, um, to modern contemporary problems, could we also then breed more equally complex problems? I mean, I, I, I do notice that, and I, I've argued with, with Billy before, I sometimes feel that we've possibly in some respect, respects, um, 
sort of, sort of superseded uh, what should be our uh, an optimal level of technological advancement for society. Uh, because I do notice that sometimes, as we get more technologically advanced, uh, we we do seem to just create more challenges for ourselves, which, which then have to be mitigated with even more increasingly complex solutions. I mean, what what, what is your take on that? I mean, I. I mean, I, I, it's a take I hear a lot that like that tech you know, introduces problems, which you know is trivially true. You change something, problems can come up. But I'll tell you, you, you look at a situation, and it's not my field, but like when we had the COVID vaccine, we had just to barely developed the technology for mRNA vaccines right before that pandemic hit, and it was only just ready, just in time. To deliver these vaccines to the world, it would have been it would have taken you know what orders of magnitude longer to to to, to, to make these vaccines uh, um, in the, the old fashioned way. Old fat- the same, this, Te- this, decades, yeah. It would have the same way we do the flu vaccine yeah. with eggs. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it would have taken us four or five years more. I mean, that's a busy chicken. That. It's the biggest busy chicken to get all that. <clears throat> yeah. And it's a, yeah. So I, yeah. I thought it was maybe one or two days, mm-hmm. and they had the vaccine figured out. Yeah. And then they had to figure out how to make it in process, and probably all the FDA trials to just check it. But I thought it was super fast yeah. once DARPA had worked through and all the researchers on that mRNA project. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a thing that, like, it's easy to – once a problem is solved, it's easy to forget it was ever there. I mean, it, like, I mean, there was a time where, you know, people had to do calculations by hand and hire, hire a human computer to get things done. And thankfully, you know, we are long past that era. Um, but, like, in terms of, like, robotics, what well, that typically comes with the idea is sort of embedded is, like, what if the robot gets so complicated it decides to, you know, become self-aware and, and take over and say we're not, we're not, we're not useful in things. It's often kind of embedded in the question. I think that what is the uh, – that, that to me is – you know, in the long list of things that robots can cause problems, that's uh, about a mile down the list behind. Will the robot accidentally fall on me? You know, that's that's really that, like that. It's uh, you know, will the thing? I like, it, it, you know, often the problems with these technologies, in my opinion, if you were to bucket the issues, it's not wow, this thing is so good it causes so many problems. Often is this thing is dumber than we think it is, and we rely on it, and it doesn't work. You know, like what? Even with these, I'm going all over the place, so I apologize. But even with some of these cool um, recent deep learning algorithms, they'll do things like, um, you know, try to detect, uh, you know, uh, uh, in brain scans, brain cancer in children, and they'll train in these networks, and like it's a success. But then you find out it's not detecting brain cancer; it's detecting children. You know, these kinds of things where you know it's it it it, 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 these things happen. In, in a way that whenever I see them, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. The thing is dumber than we think it is, not smarter. And so we just got to be careful how we rely upon these systems that seem smart but are dumber than they look. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much in, in that camp as well. But I'm, I'm totally thrilled by the changes I've seen in – Education technology, since I was a young faculty member, I started teaching in January 1985 as an assistant professor, only writing on the board and only reaching the students who 
could actually come to my room. Nobody was recording anything. And it was still a big deal to take my notes and actually scan them, make copies, and pass them out. There was no posting because there was no Internet, okay, basically available, okay. To where now I'm going to have Christian from here in Tallahassee teaching students in Michigan in Ann Arbor his optimal optimal control trajectory optimization course because not just because we can but because we are a young and growing robotics department and that's a hole we have and it'll be great for our students and we can do that now and our students are so used to these different modalities on learning that we'd be fools to say oh course wasn't invented at Michigan it shouldn't be taught here okay and so we just we can use resources and um, build um, educational systems that are much more complete than we ever could before and that's because of technology and it'll be you know here we're we're we are gathered around a table and we've got these little booms with the mics and it's all kind of you got to adjust a bunch of knobs to make all of the sounds uh, balance. You know, look, that's, that's all going to fit in something the size of a postage stamp in about 10 years, okay? Well, and it is now. There's an SD card in there. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, we will do this just because it gives us that old-time feeling, okay? <laughs> <And> that's what... <laughs> It'll be, it'll be the vinyl of the 2040s or something yes, like that. It's yeah. like, oh, I'm listening to this on a, you know, on an MP3. You know, <laughs> it's how much warmer Jesse was listening on MP3. So, well, one positive thing that did come out of it, we were talking about COVID earlier, and you're talking about educational technologies. Yeah. I will say, with Zoom in particular, or technologies like it, I have never seen a relatively new. I mean, it's not really that new. I mean, we had Skype mm-hmm. in the past decade, which was kind of its precursor. But I've never seen a communications technology be accepted so. In, in, in so widespread so quickly. So if there's one positive outcome of the pandemic, I think uh, I think Zoom is or, and things like that are here to stay. Effectively, yeah. I, I don't see us ever Absolutely. going back. And the uh, the acceptance of it, as you intimated, Jesse, I don't think I've ever seen that before. As you mentioned, like in, just a few years ago, there would have been some considerable pushback, uh, just due to the you know the the. the, the uh, the gap in geography, um, yeah. which is which seems a silly thing, obviously. Um, so it is remarkable um, to see that, and it's a positive change, I think, to see um, that we've we've made that substantive leap in in such a very short order of time. Um, so. It, it kind of uh, is a good counterpoint to a, a, a quote I always think of. Uh, actually, today I applied to social media, but I, it's a quote from a, a cleric from the Middle Ages about um, the more elaborate our means of communication, the less we communicate. Um, and the success of Zoom and technologies like that, uh, it, it, to me, is kind of a refutation of that uh, on some level. Yeah, but it's also made our students' lives so much more e- efficient. So used to, student wants to come to my office hours. Sometimes they'd be held directly after class, but then they couldn't come to it because they had to, they had another class directly after that. Or I put them later in the afternoon, and then they had to trudge all the way across campus, stand in line outside my office, get their five-minute question answered, go on. Now they just go home. They're in the dorm. They're in their apartment. They jump on Zoom. They talk to a few other students in the background while I'm working with a student or something, and then we deal with it. Ten minutes, 
they've got the thing they're done. They can get their homework done. They, they've done more learning in that 10 minutes than they would have done just walking across campus, standing outside the door, waiting for me to get freed up because I can only take three or four people in the small office I have at Michigan. I don't, you maybe have this palace who's here down in, down in who, uh, Tallahassee. Who showed you the palace? Okay, this, <laughs> Damn, the secret's out. Yeah, that's <laughs> the secret's out. But, um, yeah, most faculty offices are pretty, uh, pretty tight, pretty cozy. And so we... We have given all of us a brand new way of interacting and dealing with some things. Now, what doesn't work well in Zoom is this spontaneous way of just over-speaking and just having the conversation rotate and using the social cues. We don't have that going yet. So there's there still things to work on. In Zoom, we need to be careful because of the couple of milliseconds it takes to get the signal up on the satellite across the country down etc. And you easily overspeak too long and it becomes super awkward and we, uh, we just stop that and we have these awkward conversations. But eh, we'll yeah. get it. Yeah, I mean, and I think that when you add these, you know, I, I, just like for the medical advances, it feels like the, um, the, tech, the, the uh, communication advances it progressed Enough that I think a few years earlier it would have made the pandemic far worse to deal with. I mean, like you know, it, like the bandwidth is enough that we can actually all have Zoom classrooms. And what at least when we introduce these novel modes of of, uh, of delivering material and communicating, it's a bit of it, it's got to be a paradise for these people who do sociological research for figuring out you know how what aspects of communication do people actually respond to. I mean, like Jesse's talking about the overspeaking, the delay. Like, if I can get a lot across that delay, what does that actually take away from the communication experience? And there's something there. And we learn something when we push these bounds of, of how we talk to each other. I mean, go, you know, this goes back to all kinds of communication advances. I think about, you know, once there was an Internet and there were, like, Internet forums or instant message where you have instantaneous responses with people, but it's over text. I mean... People weren't sending telegrams back at that at that at that frequency, but it created a novel way to like, oh, what can I communicate over text really quickly? Oh, that's cool. But you miss, you know, you realize what a what a precious commodity sarcasm is uh, when you're communicating over text. The, 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 I love seeing when you decouple and peel apart layers of communication, what emerges as interesting phenomena. So the one thing I I wonder about. And maybe this would push back a little bit on uh, the ease of access. One one side on it's great to have all that access, but then it's like walking down the cereal aisle, right? <laughs> so many different options. How do I I choose? Um, so that's one I wanted to get your thoughts on interest in terms of the education. Like you know, it's great. So Christian, you can work together on these things. Is it? We just have to be good curators to get students, okay, if you're interested in this, let's get you the right information. Um, how do you balance that out? Yeah, I'm curious what you think, Jesse. There's just today I had a student at my class who wanted to get more materials, and I said, well, 
Go to the front page of Canvas. I have links to YouTube videos that I gave in 2020. Here's lecture slides that my notes are based <laughs> on. Here's the textbook. Here's the solutions to all the things. I wonder if I, you know, I thought I was being helpful to this student, but I yeah. actually wonder if I was just overwhelming them. I was trying to be like, oh, look at all the options. But it's, it's like the, going, yeah, go on. No, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's like going to like, have you ever been to a diner where there's a menu that's about, that's the size of like, you know, Tolstoy novel? It's like, that's, <laughs> it's like one of those, like, I, I don't know, a burger? What am I going to get? And maybe that's it. There, it, and there yeah. is a bit of a science to how you present the available information, so that way it it, it, it's, it, 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 it reduces the friction between decision making for the student. Yeah, well, I, I know just you know, as a you know, admin on, in academia uh, in communicating with faculty. There's, I'm know, sorry. The, the, impo- by the, the way. importance of being <laughs> succinct and just getting you know keep it simple, stupid. You have the one. One line of information that you need to be read, and 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 that's your best bet as far as getting uh, a cohesive response. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of answers your own question. That yeah, I think there is. A, um, a, what is it? Shakespeare said, a "Brevity is the soul of wit." Mm-hmm. Um, there is something to, um, to to keeping things concise and compact. Yeah, and offering the human element still. I mean. Human advisors, for you can put up everything you want on a website and have all of these potential schedules of how you get through the system, pathways. Um, those are all amazing, and they help students plan out for you know, two semesters in advance of their courses so they get the right prereqs and stuff. But in the end, they need to talk to somebody who's maybe had a little more contact with the practice of those subjects to see where all of this stuff is going. And you can't just imagine every question that a student is going to have. And so it's still very important that we have student advisors. Some of those are peer advisors. They're just older students who have gone through the system. Some of them are faculty, and some of them are trained staff who are experts at asking the right questions to help students understand what they are trying to do. So I think... I think we're doing a great job in academia right now of uh, adopting some of these modern um, tools. We're giving students uh, many more options than they've ever had. Um, People are unhappy when they don't have options, but they're even more unhappy when they have too many options. Okay, uh, the, the problem of overchoice. <laughs> overchoice. Yeah. Yes, that's the cereal aisle that Billy is referring to, um, but. As long as we keep the human element in there and we constantly say, look, you can email me if you need something. And they, 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 they develop trust that certain faculty actually do respond to emails. Okay, There are a few of us out there. Okay. And it's, it keeps the system going, I think, amazingly well. I mean, when I was an undergrad, if I wanted to talk to a professor, either I caught them in class or I figured out when they were having their office hours for something because, you know, it was on a mimeograph sheet of paper. The blue, as soon as you were out in the rain, it, it ran, and then it was gone, right? I mean, that, that was it when I was an undergrad. I mean, you, you couldn't keep track of anything. Nowadays, you go to a Canvas page, you've got all the office hours listed. You've got um, a messaging system, Piazza is what we use. I don't know if you guys use that one. It's... You can do math inside of it and some that stuff. And it's also great that the way my homeworks are set up, the 
collaborating on homework, as long as you understand what you actually turn in is fine. So that gives students the ability to pose a question on, on Piazza, which is our math messaging system built into Canvas at Michigan. And other students jump in at 1 o'clock in the morning and provide help, okay? So these are... I wasn't getting help from fellow students at 1 o'clock in the morning when I was an undergrad, okay? I mean, it just, it just wasn't there. And so there's this, we're, I think it's, it's really tightening up the human element, the human animal, in many, many, many ways that we couldn't before. So yes, maybe there's, maybe there's many more ways to communicate and we're communicating less. Maybe that's true, but I think we are actually communicating um, very deep things uh, very easily now. That's my take. So when you're talking about a, a student helping another at 1 a.m. on some problem, I'm wondering, was there some effort to try to create that kind of culture within the university? Because, you know, depending on where you are, particularly engineering students, maybe very competitive, uh, where grades play into this or things like that. So was there some efforts to create that kind of culture yeah so i make my homework only worth about 10 percent of the, the grade in the class okay mm -hmm. so if you literally just copied something and got those 10 points it's not going to change your life okay and it's you're not so that that gives everyone the motivation to kind of take it at their own pace and be able to deal with not having a fully correct homework solution turned in because it's not because homework is where you should be able to make mistakes that's that's where it should all happen and it's in the projects and things like that where um where there's more points at stake i don't have any exams in this uh, rob 101 computational linear algebra course that i'm creating and it was because I wanted to have this culture of students working together. So they work together on all the homeworks, and then there's five quizzes that are open for a week. And they can spend as much time on the quizzes as they want, okay? And we're going to drop their lowest score on the quiz, too, okay? Stuff like that. So that they, it's not the person who's the quickest, you know, with a timed exam, there's a lot of students who just perform poorly on the timed exams. But you get them in your lab and you're going like, holy smokes, this student has some really great ideas. And, and you're just going like, you have a C-plus average and you're, you're almost Einstein, okay? So just people, people show their smartness in different ways. And so I tried to create an environment where they could work together on part of the stuff, make it, make it a very collaborative experience, and then, yes, we do need to um, assess individual uh, skills. Mm -hmm. But um, So that is yeah. a cool learning environment. It, it reminds me, I wanted to ask you about this one, one paper I pulled before lunch on, uh, I think it came out of ASCE, yeah. Solving for Equity. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of an overview on the robotics program that you guys started, but one thing that particularly stood out, you know, since we're a joint college with HBCU, this dual degree program, Clark, Spellman, and Morehouse. So that sounds like a really cool opportunity for these students in a learning environment like that where they may come up learning things a little bit differently, and now you've got students from very different backgrounds working together. And it sounds like 
that probably works pretty well the way you've structured it. So how, how has that worked out so far? Um, so this, this dual degree program goes back to the <coughs> 80s, I think. It could be the 70s. It's, um, I have a colleague and I, we are secretly trying to undermine the existing dual degree program because it required students in the Atlanta University Consortium to spend three years at either Morehouse, Spelman, or Atlanta, and then spend two years at Michigan, and all they got was a bachelor's degree out of that. What we're trying, yeah, so that's what the dual degree was. Well, as a disclaimer, so I went, I went to a smaller college in Georgia on a dual degree, and then it was with Georgia Tech. So I was on this three plus two. Yeah. So are you saying I may be able to go back and get a master's or? Yeah. So our 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 goal now is, look, people choose an HBCU in part for the learning environment, the culture. They're amazing institutions, um, and they shouldn't have to. they shouldn't have to receive an education there that makes it hard to go into grad school. But it, it's, it's the case in many of these because they don't have a grad program attached to it, so there's not a research component. And today, if you haven't done some sort of undergraduate research experience, it's hard to get into a top graduate school, right? So you went to Georgia Tech, and you, and you got that, and look at you now department chair you're, yeah. you've done extremely well. but I, I will say when I was at Georgia Southwestern playing sports I was still transitioning from being like a knuckle dragging jock and it was like stepping into river rapids when you get to Georgia Tech so yeah. there there is that big transition uh, if I would have I couldn't imagine stepping into a graduate program so there interesting challenges but what if you had taken courses from mm. georgia tech faculty true. remotely true and you got to know those faculty and they were actually writing letters of recommendation for you billy to go yeah. to stanford all the top schools ut austin mm-hmm. okay yeah that's a whole nother game yeah. and to get a master's degree it puts you in a it puts you at an income level that can be family-changing, okay? It's not the generational wealth that the athletes talk about where you, know, you amass, even if it's a mere $40 million over your career or something like that, whereas instead of $400 million like some of these athletes are doing, that's, that's generational wealth. But you can certainly change the local dynamics of your own family and your immediate interact family you interact with by having the income of a a master's Mm -hmm. degree in engineering. Mm -hmm. So what can we do better to inject that kind of educational environment in, you know, areas that are historically underserved, uh, the places that need the most? uh, So this is where we are trying, we're at Michigan, we're developing a distributed teaching collaborative where we're taking advantage of the fact that we can we are already delivering a lot of our material at Michigan remotely. Of the 200 and plus students I have in my computational linear algebra course, roughly 60 come to lecture. There might be 30 to 40 online in Zoom. That means the other half of the students are 
watching the lectures asynchronously. So they are fully remote, and the ones on Zoom. So we bring in the students. For right this, this semester, I have students from Howard University. I have a student from Florida A&M, FAMU. And then I have also two teaching assistants from uh, Morehouse. They had the course last semester under Dr. Dwayne Joseph at Morehouse to learn the material. And so they're helping uh, the Michigan students learn the material. So it's a true collaborative. And by being able to enroll these students, and if they get, we think if they get three robotics courses, they're going to be ahead of most undergraduates coming out of a, a good program like here in mechanical engineering in terms of being competitive with the top schools in research and getting into grad school. So um, maybe it's a pipe dream, but we think it's potentially revolutionary to give students a sequence of courses. We know robotics is so hot that it's, it's hard to get enough faculty in the universities to get a um, a critical mass. You guys are just getting that here, mm -hmm. okay? And if you get two more people, it's just going to change everything, okay? Yeah. you got one more coming. you get two more after that. You'll be, you'll be at six, seven roboticists, and that's, that's enough to start gelling and having your feet in many different areas. Yeah. But you're rare, okay? Most places, there's a single roboticist, if there's any, and at the HBCUs, there are none. And so we need to not have all of the talent locked up and just the students who are fortunate enough to get to these few schools that have the ability to teach these these topics and to keep them fresh and we're making a small effort at that we'll see we'll see if it goes anywhere that's part of the vision here at the joint college being that we are an intersection of a hbcu and an r1 research institution yeah. exactly so, yeah. and it's it's but Almost nowhere else in the country do you have these two institutions very close together collaborating. And um, yeah, I mean, and, and one of the other advantages of having a collaborative like this, I mean, because robotics, even though the promise is huge, and now it's it's becoming a bigger industry academically, it's a small community, and so as a result, you know, like like Jesse, you have this course in computational linear algebra where you have a very clear vision about how you want to take the course and how you want to teach it in a way that people can access it access it at a, at a, at a level where they don't have necessarily a lot of prerequisites. I have my own way of doing optimal control that has a similar philosophy, but we can each have our own specialty in delivering these courses, which take a lot of energy and philosophical thought that goes into them, and we can all benefit from each other's you know, little passion projects, if you will, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and share in that way. I think that's exciting. And um, and so I it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that you know how that, ex that that expands as we get more faculty into the works. So yeah, yeah. I mean, eventually there may be enough of us to go around that we don't need to be delivering things remotely. That you'll have enough local talent to do all that. But yeah. it's certainly not true now, and it can't be true in the next fifteen years. There's just not enough people being being trained in the area to make a dent in it in the next 15 years. So, What are your hopes uh, for robotics education in particular in the next 15 years or so? I mean, what track do you see uh, us heading nationwide? Well, um, over the past decade, there's probably been 20 or 30 graduate programs created across the country. And they're even 
talking about one here. You guys have one program you need to produce first, and then you're talking about moving on to robotics. Okay, I'm sorry to let the mm -hmm. cat out of the bag, but it's all good. It's all good. I mean, um, so that's happening. What's what's just getting started is getting it at the undergraduate level, and so um, WPI was maybe the first university to get that going. Um, but they didn't quite have enough critical mass to take apart the robotics discipline and then put it together. So what they did was, it's essentially mechanical engineering and then electrical and computer science. Students take, take, take standard courses in all of those, put it, stitching them together in a planned way, and then they have a couple of a, a key freshmen, sophomore, junior, and senior labs. But if you want to be a real roboticist, the the best major now is a quadruple major in mathematics, mechanical engineering, computer science, and, um, and uh, electrical engineering with a minor in uh, psychology, okay? So it's just not practical. You can't do that. And so what we've done at Michigan is take apart those subjects and put them back together in a way that they can be taught in four years. And so... Um, I think there's going to be a huge demand for these students. Um, our master students are getting salaries around 150, 170 k. That's what the master students are getting. I'm guessing the undergrads. This is the median, not the top. Okay, I'm guessing our undergrads will be at 130, 140 very quickly. Okay, just a little bit below that. Hope our students are listening to this. Yeah. So I wonder when you. Um when you dissected all these different fields, put it, packaged it back together into four, four years, um, was was this just with faculty in your department where each one has their sacred cows and they want to <laughs> keep these, or did you have folks from I don't know, psychology or cognitive science, uh, some helping you put this curriculum together? How how long did that take? How painful was it? Well, we've had. We started a robotics institute at Michigan and launched a graduate program in 2014. We learned a lot by running that, uh, that graduate program, and we had faculty from nine different departments working together on that. And so that experience and collaboration is what gave us the ability to understand um, how we could take things apart and put them back together because we did it as a faculty. So the, we formed our department primarily by taking faculty from mechanical engineering, computer science, electrical engineering, um, nobody from math, though we have some really, really highly, highly uh, math-skilled uh, uh, faculty in engineering. And then we have people who work in the human-robot interaction area who are trained in uh, psychology and statistical methods and human studies, etc. So we had a very broad base of faculty to help us do that, Billy. And then okay. that's, that's where you can't do it if you just have three faculty. Okay. Yeah. So we yeah. had 30 of us, of which at least 20 were heavily committed to, to doing this. Mm -hmm. You put 20 faculty who are doing something because they want to do it, not because their chairman told them to do it or their dean told them to do it. It's a totally different mm -hmm. uh, working mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. And we did all of this on borrowed time. We weren't getting release service time from our home departments. It was just 
you know, saying it's a labor of love is trite and everything, but it, it was because we felt it was the right thing to do. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's the best way to make it happen. Yeah. So, um, one thing, and, and this may be too much of an aside, but I am curious. Um, so, your your Cassie that was procured back in 2017, that was partially uh, through uh, NSF funding, but I know you also received some uh, grants from Toyota uh, Research Institute to correct, get the yeah. to get the robot. And I know Christian, you've also uh, received a grant from Toyota Research Institute to work with Cassie. So. Um, I guess my question is, um, uh, I assume it has something to do with autonomous systems, but uh, what's Toyota's stake in all this? Well, we see each other at the PI meetings, Jesse. That's <laughs> for the Toyota for the for Toyota things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the uh, technologies that Christian and I are developing are not so different than the technologies in autonomous vehicles, and yet for students, it's a heck of a lot safer to work with these small robots that Cassie is 33, 34 kilograms, so 70 pounds, okay? It's, it's a lot safer to work around those. Um, TRI has multiple components. One of the themes that came from Toyota is to also develop robot, robots for use in the home. And yeah, so part, I was so, excited for us to get to this part in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, please continue. So part of that was they they have faculty working on um, computer vision, perception, deep learning, manipulation in order to flip pancakes, to cook things on the stove, etc. They have other uh, faculty who are more on mobile manipulation, where you would fill and empty a dishwasher or something, or bring bring uh, food to um, someone who's unable to go get up and go to the kitchen and get, get their stuff. Um, so they've got a, they've got a group of, um, of uh, projects in that area. And then there's the bipedal robot people who are... <laughs> who <laughs> those are, people. Yeah. Those people who are... Um, my side of the of that, we are literally collaborating with the main people at TRI and Woven who are developing the mapping and perception systems for autonomous driving. And we test those algorithms out on our robot because if it's navigating around campus, who cares if it's on legs or wheels? Now, for my students... They care a lot, okay? They, they really want to work on these bipedal robots, and I saw how motivated Christian students are in the lab and Jonathan's students to work with these various types of um, legs, whether they're set up to be claws and emulate a squirrel climbing up a tree or whether they are bipedal robots that, you know, people project their own, uh, their own spirits uh, onto. But... Um, TRI is supporting us because we do interesting things in hybrid systems. We do interesting things in real-time control. We do interesting things in handling complex models and developing simplified representations of them. And these are all things that feed into what they need for developing autonomous vehicles and also for the home, the home, the home robotics. Yeah, I tell you what, I, I will give Toyota every cent that I have if I never have to load and unload a dishwasher again. 
it is interesting how much we, I mean, you think about in the course of history uh, how much more leisure time the average person has now thanks to advancements we've made in technology i think we take for granted i mean uh, myself not exempted uh just how much spare time we have and yet it still feels like we have none so we have a long way to go uh yeah and and you and you're talking about like leisure time and uh it's and uh recently i was talking with um the head of this university program at toyota uh eric krokov and he and he and he was telling us the origin of this toyota research institute tri and i didn't heard this particular origin story but he was telling the story that like uh it was only recently incorporated as of 2015 2016 uh, as as an institute in and of itself, it was br- shortly after this major DARPA robotics project initiative had just come to a close, and uh, Eric Krotkoff was a big force in that, and um, and he, he he said that um, he and the other executives for would, what would be Toyota Research Institute were going to companies trying to pitch that we want to start a like a research institute um, that should be yeah, should be a part of like a major. Uh, like automotive companies, so they went to Toyota and they they went and they pitched. You're like, okay, well, this is Toyota. We they, they're going to want autonomous driving, and sure enough, they do. Um, and and he done this pitch, and and so did Gil Pratt, and uh, the executives, you know, took a second to confer amongst themselves. These Japanese executives in Japan, and were, they conferred amongst themselves, and they came back in English and said, dementia dementia and they're like that 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 japan was concerned you know uh, they have a significantly aging population there how are we going to handle you know people who have dementia in their own homes so that ended up being with robots in the home that jesse's talking about is one of the major thrusts in addition to autonomous driving in part because of that's what what toyota understands will be a big deal later and and uh the and and it's it's a it's a tough problem i mean autonomous driving very hard very hard to do in a role. I mean, we see uh, headlines of, of, of robots that are wor- working on the roads, but but we know the reliability is still a work in progress. There's a reason why we can't all just buy an autonomous car. And it's hard because, you know, lots of things can happen on the road. You know, things can jump in front of you. Maybe your cameras don't pick it up. Creates All these kinds of things can go wrong. But at least there are rules of the road. There's laws as to what you can and cannot do in terms of lane changing and, and turning on different streets. They're, they're written almost like, like state machine rules for a robot. Who goes at an intersection? Who has right of way? What are the rules of not bumping into grandpa? Who has, you know, like, you know, you know, like when, when, he, when, they're, when they're walking around? What are the rules for, you know, getting out of the way when, you know, you know gran- when grandma's Quick, trying to cut Quickly vegetables. picking up a child, you know, yeah. when grandma's wheelchair is exactly. about to roll over their foot Perfect. accidentally. Okay. Yeah. And how rough can I be yeah. if I'm going to protect this, you know, there's a, that is. It's huge. It's a huge m- problem. I don't, I don't know anybody who was willing to. To sign that piece of paper saying this is the uh, probability of injury that's acceptable. Okay, that's 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 a that's a huge moral dilemma. No. But you are going to have some injuries if you're snatching that child up out of the way. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, for these kind of advancements that you're talking about to happen, we we have to have our whole cityscapes incorporate these sort of cyber physical systems to to achieve that. Now. What's a realistic way that we can arrive at that sort of infrastructure? Because, I mean, if we, we see how uh, one of the contemporary social problems that we have today is just that we have, you know, crumbling roads and bridges. I mean, 
uh, we're, we're talking about redesigning in, in entire cities at the home level to make that happen. Um, what would that look like? Uh, well, I think I think we're not going to fundamentally change the home. We're not fundamentally going to change all of the cities because, yes, maybe parts of New York, parts of L.A., Ann Arbor has almost every uh, intersection outfitted so we can do vehicle-to-vehicle communication studies at intersections, okay. But as soon as you go to Celine, a little village outside of town, there's not a single one, okay. So no matter how much infrastructure we put in, it's going to be only in the densely populated Sections and there, then only in the densely populated sections with a very strong tax base. Okay, that's what's going. So we have to keep this decentralized, where you can slowly adopt. It's like not everybody has a dishwasher, right? And they still do it by hand. Others have it. It becomes more and more common that everybody has one. Okay, it's become more and more common. Everybody has air conditioning of some kind. Though twenty years ago. Oklahoma, where I grew up 40 years ago, there's no air conditioning on the farm, I guarantee you, okay? Well, most of old Europe still doesn't have air conditioning. Air conditioning. And, and now that we're having these extreme heat waves, or they are seeing the value the, the, in that. Yeah, yeah, they thought the Americans were, were actually crazy to have all of that, okay? So there's all of these things. The only way that they can be adopted is slowly, and it has to be... Um, pretty self-contained each unit that is added to the system. Yeah. And that's why our robots need to be a little smarter than they are, Christian. Yeah, I agree. And uh, that, I mean, it, it, I, and I think about, you know, just the history in the last, you know, 80 years or so of technological advancements. I mean, when, when computers came around and became something that c- corporations and companies realized would be a useful productivity tool, we trained a generation to type. We, cha- we trained people to use these machines that are kind of that don't think quite like we do, and uh, as a skill set, um, and where we hit an additional challenge is that when we put robots in our homes, you know, we they need to learn to adapt to us, and that is a fundamentally harder problem. I mean, we're pretty smart and adaptable. We can figure out how to type, we figure out how to code, how to run Excel spreadsheets, you know, all the useful survival skills of the 21st century, but. Getting a robot to adapt to us is just such a harder problem. It's, and it's one, one that we need to do, and that's the smart side, as I interpret it, that Jesse is talking about. I mean, they have to play by our rules. So when I had one question along this line. When you're coming back to dementia in Japan, I see that as, you know, uh, uh, a big challenge, of course, and I can see that being a driver. Um, and it's a huge challenge, right, these uh, neurological disorders as you get older but I'm, I'm also wondering about we, we have that problem here too and very important but also there, there's another podcast I listen to uh, Jocko Willink has this one and he I think he's mentioned this a couple times and I can't remember the exact figures but decades ago 40 or 50 years ago I think it was a, a number of every 100,000 people there were about Three or four hundred beds for um, people with schizophrenia and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think now 
it's gone from like three or four hundred beds to seven, seventeen, or something like that. Mm. And so I wonder with these these not just dementia but other problems and people that are out on the streets, homeless. We can't figure out how to help these people. Is robots one potential solution to help these people in addition to dementia? I'm seeing the wheels turn. <laughs> Can you guys make that happen? Yeah, I'm, 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 the NSF proposal is just kicking around in my head. I don't know. It's like, let's see how Dang, this works. Let's, uh, you guys do it. I, I, so you're talking about general, uh, um, and, and I'm, I'm still struggling for an answer. So, Jesse, I'm kind of looking to you to rescue me. At this yeah, point. I mean, <laughs> you know, could we have robots that, you know, no matter how cold, they at least go from camp to camp and check on people yeah or i I think seeing who needs medical care you know because a lot of a lot of what we need to help people is just information that they need help because they're not reaching out right and i I may be wrong historically maybe neil knows but i think part of the reason they shut down a lot of these is the the patients were just being treated really poorly and it was they just cut the funding and now a lot of those people are out on the street so Mm -hmm. you know a robot like you said it's going to clean the bathroom no, no matter how many times. So I wonder if there's an opportunity there. I mean, there's certainly an opportunity there. And I, th- I think that um, we all see the potential. And I think that the reality that we have to look at where we are now, which it's exciting for us as researchers. We can always it's, – it's, my life's easier when I say there's this great thing that I think we can do. We can't do it yet. Let's fund some students to figure it out. But, like, I mean, what robots do we have in our home now? I mean, if we think of as robots, uh, you know, I have a Roomba. Once I became a robotics professor, I felt I should buy one to actually experience <laughs> what it's like to have in my house. I mean, it does fine. You know? I was worried. I bought that as a Christmas present for my wife. Yeah. And I was worried when she opened it. But she loved it. You get your time back. My, my uh, wife so. wanted a Roomba. She was like, she's like, I want the Roomba. I was like, okay, all right, that's. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it I'm doesn't bump into walls and stuff. Well, or? I mean, they're different models. I mean, like there, there, there's ones that will just bump into walls and navigate without a map. But then the more advanced models will have simultaneous localization and mapping, which, in my opinion, is the best acronym in the history of robotics. Slam, um, nice as, as slam, and uh, you know, and we'll be able to to map out their environment. I mean, and it does fine. But, you know, the, the moment I have, like, a rug with the little yeah, the little twiddly things on the end, I don't know what those are called, but, you know, the fringe. Tassels. I tassels, think they're called tassels. Tassels, yeah, thank you. That's, that's the word I'm going for. I was uh, tipping my tongue, Jesse. Yeah. You know, it, it'll, get, it'll get caught up, and guess who has to come and rescue it? You know, the human, right? That's the reality. And, and, and it's not an iRobot. There are no slouches. They've been at this for, what, 15, 20 years making these robots? It's been a very, it, it, it's been a long time. And they've got 15 or 20 competitors now? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a huge, <laughs> it, it's not a small endeavor, and that's where we're at. And not for lack of trying, it's just hard to get around in human environments. We built them for us. You know, we don't think about, oh, we not stubbing our toe on the, the transition from linoleum to the carpet. I mean, we at least if we don't think about it, it's because we're so good at it. You know, it, it, it's just, um, and so if, we're, if you're pitching, like, what is the next phase of development? It is, how do you have assurances that your robot will do these things? And this is something that, by the way, the controls folks are very good at. I mean, the, like, um, we have colleagues who, Focus on control, like having mathematical, get, you know, we guarantees. guarantees. So correct by construction, right. control design. So that, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Go on. Yeah, taking ideas originally developed in uh, in uh, computer science 
for how you verify that programs will actually execute all of the modes that you've uh, designed into them and will not just go into a particular for loop and never come out, have dead ends, okay? So those methods are now being applied to differential equations and where you can set up a problem statement that is much richer than the ones I used to teach students as an in my undergrad course where I'd teach them about a gain margin and a phase margin and hey guys you're you're good to go um, now we can set up specifications that are much more sophisticated and for small classes of systems actually design the controller that will guarantee or prove that there it does not exist a controller that will meet all of those specifications and identify which of the specification is the limiting value and that's yeah. where a lot of your convex optimization tools come in yeah. Christian yeah it's uh, I think that uh, um, so basically you know we, we hear a lot and and with good with good reason about the sort of AI side, we'll call it, the deep reinforcement learning examples, which for those who aren't familiar, more or less you give examples to a learning algorithm and you reward it based upon how well it does. And then the algorithm shapes a solution that's pretty good at doing the thing that you want it to do. You've rewarded a lot. Um, but the guarantees on that being effective or safe are limited that you can do on that kind of thing. It either, it, it wor it either works well, works kind of well. It's hard, to, it's hard to really quantify sometimes. But when you're going from a sort of foundational mathematical perspective, it's correct by construction approach, a lot of controls people want to go that way because if it's built from the ground up to be correct, no matter how complex it gets or how complicated the world, the world gets, you have that math to rely on and say, this should work. Or at least if it's not going to work, it's because of this. And so what, as we want robots, again, in our, up in our grills, you know, we want to have that confidence other than saying, well, it's ran for a long time before. It hasn't run, bumped into me yet, you know. Something so I, I haven't worked that one out for uh, in the control area, but I'm just thinking in terms of Cassie and the number of degrees of freedom. That doesn't sound like a trivial problem to prove. No, it's not. So what, we're not what there you, yet. You, okay, so you, you no. approximate it somehow, or are you are it, you not even there yet? Well, I mean, the, the, the and oh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I am gonna be slightly insecure as I talk about this in front of Jesse. So just prepare myself. But like you know, one of the ways that you would in terms of traditional like nonlinear controls would be with Lyapunov functions, mm -hmm. right? And you know, and, and that used to be this black art, can you find a Lyapunov function? But people have gotten smarter recently in how they construct these control problems so that way and the idea behind a Lyapunov function is it allows you to give you like a region of your robot space, let's let's say, that says, if I'm in this space, it's cool. I'm not going to go outside of it. Um, and but the math, you know, tends to become hairy very quickly, as mm -hmm. you're mentioning with yeah. like with Cassie. And so people try to simplify the robot. People try to come up with other ways to sort of force it into this regime where it's there is a Lyapunov function using control. There are lots of ways to do it, but like it's it's. It's difficult to do for the full, like, many degree of freedom robot. I mean, Cassie has 10 motors, four springs on it, plus the six degrees of freedom of you'll roll pitch, you off, forward, backward, left, right, up, down. And so it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> so that's, thank you, Jesse, for backing me up on that. Yeah, yeah it's a lot. Yeah. But, but the field 
Fields been remarkably creative about um, developing new approaches to these problems, and some of them that are more appropriate for drones, some of them more appropriate for legged vehicles. Yep. You know, we're we keep inching along, and that's what got us here. You know, we used to construct all of our machines one at a time, and when a part break, there was no other part identical to it, and we had to file everything down and do it. And then. Then somebody had this great idea with the flintlock rifle to make all the parts the same, and then we could do that, right? And then manufacturing happened, and then we did manufacturing at scale. So we didn't go from, oh, let's start building machines that can help humans to these massive uh, machines that are creating semiconductor chips with a billion transistors on them that where 99.999% of them actually function and do what they're supposed to do. We didn't do that in a decade, okay? That's taken 250 years. And so the, the challenges we're taking on with robotics, I think, are similar to the challenges we took on when we started on the Industrial Revolution. And we're, we're still milking that one, okay? Yeah, I, I have to say, um, as a relative layperson, um, this conversation here has been very edifying, and it's also... Um, Kind of, you're kind of helping to, uh, as control people and as, as roboticists, you're kind of helping to allay some of my culturally inculcated concerns about robots taking over and replacing us. Um, it doesn't sound like we're quite there yet, and it doesn't really sound like we may ever be there. Um, so that's that's actually very encouraging. Now, I mean, in, in uh, the popular mind, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, automation, you know, replacing the workforce, and there's been some panic in some sectors about that. Um, my estimation is that, by and large, automation has obviously, as we've discussed, uh, largely improved our lives and continues to improve our lives. Um, I, I guess, is there any validity to the concern that we may be um, outmoding uh, certain uh, sects of the economy? And You uh, know, um, we kind of killed the horse economy right when we right when we did the when we did the car and you know and then all the people who used to go around the streets and shovel up the the horse manure we got rid of that 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 line of work as well and we replaced it with mechanics and for a lot of us taking cars apart and putting them back together is it's almost fun okay so we created a whole nother types of jobs and with these robots, what we're seeing is we are creating huge demand for people who can do electronics, programming, mechanical debugging. There's just so many different skill sets there that can be, many of them done with a two-year associate's degree, okay? So we're not just like, oh, we're only creating jobs for the elites, the people with uh, PhDs. No, there's, there's jobs for everybody because everybody has different desires on where they want to be on the educational spectrum and how much of their life they want to fold into their career versus eh, subsistence and me spending more time with family and uh, pastimes is how I want to organize my life. There's all that there, and I don't think robotics is going to change that balance. It's changing different jobs that one can do and you're no longer going 
to be maybe as much of a um, woodworking is not the the you know end all that it used to be. If you could be a a, a fine uh, wood craftsman, okay, but there's other jobs where that people are doing and finding to be much more fulfilling than um, running a fryer station in a fast food. Yeah, and, yeah, I mean, and that's my, largely my take in terms of like the long-term effects of automation that people have long predicted. You can find videos of, of kids in the 1950s being, being, uh, being asked about computers, I think, I think maybe 50s or 60s, and they're basically saying the same. These, these kids are like, oh, I'm worried that in the future only the, there won't be any jobs left and only the highest paying people, only the most educated people can get jobs. And it, I don't, I don't think this really panned out, as, as Jesse as, uh, as, has pointed out. I mean, there is, uh, in terms of the effects of automation in the near term, you know, that's a policy-level discussion that is often outside of my area of expertise of, econo- of, of, of economies. I mean, but I think that what people in robotics tend to see is that, is the, poten- is that the potential for making more things automated and improving the quality of life for people so they can do, just Jesse was saying, things that are more fulfilling. Um, yeah. Well, let, let me flip the question yeah. on its head then. What are some then uh, external obstacles to uh, the progress that we've seen in robotics? I mean, uh, what are some uh, sort of sociological uh, constraints that you face and foresee con- yourselves continuing to face going forward? I am, and this is not my direct field, but like I, and uses sort of a canary in the coal mine for how people view robots is what if there is a mass adoption of self-driving cars? How do people treat that? And I'd be curious to see what that look, I mean, like, I, I'm not sure if we're close to that. I don't think, I don't think we're close to that. Um, but all of a sudden these are little robots driving around on the streets. How do people view that? Do people trust to cross the street when the robot seems to slow down and go go in front of it? Or is there going to be this awkward standoff between the man and the machine as to who goes, as who's actually going to go? I think that that's going to be, if we get to that point, um, the, the one of, the, one of the, the signals I will take as to how people would react to a larger adoption of robotics. I mean... Um, I, I sort of view sort of three tiers of robotics adoption. That, and this is my just my personal tiering whenever I put this into a, a, a PowerPoint slide, that currently we got robots in factories where everything is very tightly controlled. Everyone around the, the, around the robots has, is trained to stay away from the robots, and the robots do their thing. The robots are in a climate-controlled environment. They do their stuff, right? Now we're hoping to get robots out on the road. That's autonomous cars, basically robots. It's still a structured environment. It's got asphalt. There are rules of the road. but And the people around the robots are kind of trained. They have driver's licenses and they, there are rules, but it's a little bit more unstructured. It's a little bit more chaotic. And I would see that as the second tier adoption. And what would be awesome, I think, is the third tier adoption where we have them in our daily lives. And I think that the tier two adoption, I think, will tell us a lot about how people fundamentally view robots and whether they trust them in their grills, as I say. I think the bare minimum will generate a whole new class of lawyers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's true. Um, so where do you guys think, what, what company other than, the, than you know, Google's effort in autonomous vehicles, et cetera, 
what companies do you think are making the the biggest breakthroughs in automation today? Hmm. I'm guessing it's something I'm not I going to be anticipating. Really. I, I, I'm going to say Johnson and Johnson. There, well, you came close. I did. Drug. Oh, okay. I, I was going to say semi semiconductor production, but that's different. But uh, I would say drug discovery. I think it's John Deere. <laughs> Seriously? Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, they are automating farm? every yeah. piece of farm. Interesting. Everyone's got to eat. Makes sense. Well, first of all, it's not a GPS denied environment. Typically, mm. you're out that's in the fields. Okay. There are very few people out in these fields because yeah. nobody wants to work them anymore. They develop first these ginormous tractors that can pull plows that are 50 feet wide, maybe more, 100 feet wide at a time just to make it more efficient. But they still don't have enough people to run, run the darn tractors, okay? So now what they're doing, they're automating the tractors. And um, it's, it's working out fantastic. They're using drones to see where are the weeds and where is the grass not growing properly and then... They take that map, they program up the fertilize spreader, the weed things, and the application is no longer just uniform all the way across the field with the farmer sitting there twisting a knob to give a little bit more because he had noticed this bare spot uh, mm-hmm. last week mm-hmm. when he was touring the fields. It automatically scans the fields and adjusts exactly the right level, so we're getting less, less pollution and mm-hmm. runoff. And it's, it seems to be a huge thing, and John Deere is way ahead from what I can tell. It sounds like they're meeting what we can anticipate to be a massive need is, you know, uh, globalism leads to more, um, more of the world uh, entering the middle class and increasing our, our desire for, for, for grain and for meat especially. Uh, it takes a lot of... Uh, it takes a lot of arable land to grow that much uh, food. Food for, for for food for cattle, and then food for people. And uh, yeah, so they're doing it. We're almost eight billion on the planet, and you know when I was uh, a member of the Future Farmers of America as a seventeen-year-old, the uh, the uh, slogan was "Never before have so few fed so many." Okay, because farmers with their automation and stuff were. And all of the uh, chemical fertilizers and the pesticides before we understood, you know, this is back in the 70s, before we understood all of the deleterious effects, etc. But now we're, automation is taking that to make what we did back in the 70s look like child's play. Okay, it's, it's looking like an ox and a plow to the 70s is what the 70s is to what the modern farming system is. It's very cool. So, Neil, I'm thinking we're, we're starting to push up we on were, time. We are getting close to the end. Do you have any final thoughts, Billy? Thanks for coming. I enjoyed the talk um, today. I did as well. Uh, I do have one uh, quick question for both of you, and I, and I, I want to end on a positive note, so that's why I saved this for last. But um, So, uh, for both of you, um, where is the joy in, in, in robotics and uh, in feedback controls, where, 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 <laughs> let's get back. To, let's get back to the. Where, where, where is this? I'm Solving serious. Like, differential equations. It's in the delta. Oh my God. Okay, so loaded. I wasn't trying to. Oh my not God, a trick question. Yeah. I just, there, there's like thirty fine, of them. There's like thirty of them. I mean, <laughs> Christian and I 
um, appreciate the theoretical math side. We appreciate the programming side. We appreciate the machine getting it to work side, and we appreciate the the building, the student teams who are able to do this. Because let's be honest, yeah. okay? Faculty members are group leaders. I've been happy, and I see that Christian is doing this. We like to work individually with our students up to a certain point until they become better at us at the subject, and then we know, well, we're done with this student, okay? <laughs> let's, let's get the next one up to speed. So the joy is just there's so many ways to have fun in this field. Yeah, and I, and I agree. And I think that if I were to talk about just robotics specifically, I mean, it really feels like a soup to nuts kind of enterprise where you go from the fundamental math where you're at a whiteboard and you're writing out, you know what, I think this is a way that we can get a robot to, you know, dart around a dodgeball, you know, like, to, to, like to, to drone a dodge around a dodgeball. Okay. I think that we can set it up this way. And then at the end of the pipeline, your student ran an experiment where you threw a thing at it and it zipped around it. And just <clears throat> it, 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 the full spectrum from theoretical to practical is really cool. And then at the end, you know, you know, Jess and I work in sort of dynamic robotics. What we're watching, it's also viscerally awesome. You're seeing uh, something doing things, something that it almost it looks smart. It looks like it's doing something clever, but it only emerged because you set up the problem right, and then some students worked extraordinarily hard tracking down all the bugs, twiddling all the knobs until it actually made it come to fruition. And that's exciting. Yeah, guys, all of this has been truly awe-inspiring. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been yeah, one of my favorite thanks, talks Jesse. so far. Christian. All right, folks, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Mechanically Incorrect is a production of the FAMU FSU College of Engineering in Tallahassee, Florida. Music by Blue Wave Theory. To stay up to date with content, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Write to us. Please send questions or suggestions for episodes to ncoker at eng.famu.fsu.edu with the word podcast in the subject line. I'm Neil Coker. Thanks for listening. <laughs> and that's all.